The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today, we have a special guest and a friend of mine, David Sibbett. He's founder and president of the Grove Consultants International, and he's author of a newly released book, Visual Meetings, How Graphics, Sticky Notes, and Idea Mapping Can Transform Group Productivity. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. It's great to have you here. So tell us where you are today. Well, I'm sitting in my office at the Presidio's Thoreau Center for Sustainability, which uh, we were very lucky to become a part of in the 1990s. And the sun has just come out through the fog. We've been having a lot of fog. For those of you who don't know, the Presidio is in San Francisco, very close to the Golden Gate Bridge. And, um, you know, it's not an abnormal day in the summer with fog in San Francisco. So I'm glad that it's peaking out there. Yep. Yep, I just came back from Washington, D.C., where we had nice little summer thunderstorms. And fortunately, it kept it nice and cool, and the week before that, I was in Chicago, so I've been a little bit on the road. It's nice to be you back. You have. You have. Well, the Presidio is a beautiful, beautiful place. I've been to your offices there, the Grove Consultants International offices, and it's fantastic, and I encourage anybody who wants to visit David to call him and, and ask for an invitation. How about that? <laughs> You'd be welcome. <laughs> so, David, um, let's start out with this concept of visual meetings. You've had a rich history in getting to this book. And um, just give us a quick description of what visual meetings are, and then I want to let people learn about you. Mm-hmm. Well, the simplest way to understand it is uh, working in meetings the way architects and designers work in studio settings, where you basically are visualizing ideas and mapping things out and pulling everybody's information together and something mm. that can be seen. Mm. And there are just many, many ways of doing that, but I've been part of a whole West Coast school of facilitation that's been very inspired by the, the design fields. Oh, and I've been working this way since the mid-'70s when, together with an organization called Interaction Associates, we were kind of pioneering how you could bring facilitation to business. So back in the 70s when um, you were getting intrigued by this, what led you to that? What kind of work were you in? I was uh, working with an organization called the Coro Foundation at the time. It's now called the Coro Center for Civic Leadership in San Francisco. And this is an organization that has centers in seven cities, and its purpose, it was created in 1948 by some 
very publicly oriented people who felt that people going into public work, public affairs work, ought to be able to be trained for that work the way doctors are trained through internships to go into medicine. Mm. And so they created a year-long, nine-month-long internship-based program, which was one of the most adventurous experience-based education programs that I knew of. And I by chance, had gone through this program uh, right after college, and they recruited me back on the staff in the 70s. And um, our offices, uh, where we did these um, different leadership programs, were in a warehouse south of Market Street that was setting up as kind of an organizational community by a couple of returning Peace Corps architects, the stories. And Interaction Associates was our neighbor. So we got very interested in their development of facilitation methodologies. Uh, They originally were aiming at teachers, but they eventually moved out to all kinds of organizations. And one thing led to another. And and the rest is history. (laughs) Well... And a very rich history. (laughs) Yeah, it's... um, I I was actually trained in in journalism. I I came to Coro from Chicago. I was working on the Chicago Mm -hmm. Tribune. And I had also always drawn all through my life, but happened to be red-green colorblind, so I just did never feel that going into the arts made sense with that liability. Hmm. But if you put together an interest in drawing, and I've always done a lot of things like that uh, with journalism, and basically think of standing up in front of a group and interviewing them and having the interview notes be great big displays on the wall. That's basically what we invented in the 70s. We called it group graphics. And we used it to get the Coral Fellows to understand how complex systems work in, in a city and municipal environment. So we would diagram power structures of City Hall. We would do flowcharts of campaigns. You know, we would do sociograms of our group process to try to look at it. We tried everything. And I spent about five years really exploring this medium intensively because mostly because of the impact that it had on the groups. I mean, the, the seminars really went to another level when the whole group could kind of see what it was doing within a collective uh, visual space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's interesting. I um, I've seen these graphics that you do and. Um, I am. Uh, I wish our audience was looking at them right now. I'm going to put a few up on the um, website when they go back to listen to the show later. They can. They'll be able to see them. But they are so powerful, and they are. They have brilliant colors, and the graphics are um, engaging. And it does look like one needs to have an artistic soul to do this work. <laughs> well, you. you... You do and you don't. I mean, it, it, it's important to be interested in visualization. But mm-hmm. um, I just, two weeks ago, was at the 15th annual conference of an organization called the International Forum of Visual Practitioners. There's now a, actually an international association of people who make their living graphically representing meetings and other things. Hmm. And it was quite wonderful because they asked me as one of the pioneers in the field to come and co-host a retrospective 
and we brought back a whole bunch of the people in the 70s who were kind of exploring this way of working and told the whole history. And what I realized today, what has happened, is that visual thinking and design thinking as ways of, of communicating that are really needed is, have become much more popular. Um, you know, back when we started, there were no such things as graphic computers and no PowerPoint and no, I mean, we had acetates, overhead, this, you know, kinds of things. But people mostly thought of the challenge of running business as being numbers and words. And designers worked with imagery, but other people didn't particularly. Yeah. Um, maybe magazine advertisements and things like that. But now um, you have a younger generation that is completely uh, at home with multimedia and, in fact, is creating highly integrated kinds of representations in Facebook and all kinds of other things um, using pictures and words fluidly. And mm-hmm. there's just a huge amount of interest in this. And so... Um, it's interesting that, uh, you know, Wiley and Sons, who's the publisher of my book, actually approached me to write this book. I've, most of the books I've written have been for the professional community of people who do this professionally. And they said, look, you know, this is, uh, this is something that will work for a wide number of people. Would you be interested in doing one on how you've been working with visuals with groups, not just for individual problem solving? So what I noticed at this uh, forum is there's really, um, much like in music, you know, you take the field of music, there's a spectrum of all kinds of styles of music. Mm-hmm. You know, you have informal campfire singing on the one side and opera on the other side and everything in between, jazz and many different flavors within that. Well, visual visualization is a, is a language that has that kind of, of, of scope. If you think about gesture as being one aspect of visual thinking, you know, right. talk and they wave their hands. And, you know, napkin drawings and little sketches and there's all that kind of quickie kinds of things, all the way to in- enormously complex display design for controlling things like the electrical grid in California. I mean, you've got the visual equivalent of opera going where people can literally see where all the electricity and bottlenecks are. They were one of my clients a couple of years ago, so I had a chance to see how they do that. Um, and everything in between. Now, I come from a practice that has primarily been applied to strategic planning and leading management teams to get clear about what they're doing. And what we've been exploring is using the display as part of the of the meeting, you know, we're often a U shape with uh, the, the paper as part of sure. what's going, and the group itself is literally mapping what they're thinking, looking at the display, almost using me like a, I sometimes humorously call myself a, bio, a bionic Macintosh <laughs> that I, I can visualize and draw and write anything they want me to, and so all they have to do is say some things, and it boop, up, goes up on the board, mm-hmm. and. This kind of visualization actually requires a fair amount of discipline about the different formats that you use to kind of lay out the information. And it's almost more like cartography than it is like artistry. Oh, interesting. But there is a whole branch of this work. There are quite a number of people who are making their living documenting conferences and special meetings where they aren't necessarily in front of the room. They're kind of off to the side 
that are approaching this almost like a performance art. Right. And get very amazingly beautiful, you know, essentially visual translations of what's being said. And so you've got, been... you've got that spectrum that's starting to spread out. I have been in conferences that um, where this has been occurring, and it is beautiful because you know um, at a couple of conferences I was at, they they had um, huge pieces of paper um, lining the walls, and the graphic facilitator was capturing what was going on, mm-hmm. and uh, and then at breaks and at the end of the day, um, everybody would stream past these visuals and. Yes. and have such a great memory of oh so and so said this and oh that was when that was happening and it was yep. a very powerful experience for people very. and um, and the I was just so impressed with how this facilitator captured the pure essence of what was mm-hmm. going on it was it so reflected the truth mm-hmm. you know it's like God how how can they do that. Because things are happening so fast, right? Mm-hmm. So how, at what level must they be listening in mm-hmm. order to do this? Well, it's a little bit like I've always been intrigued with um, how, how the mind actually pays attention to things. And it's pretty clear that we see what we're looking for in, in many respects. That may be an oversimplification, but our, our intention and our task orientation very much color our perceptions. And you're seeing this insight popping up in all kinds of fields. Um, but people tune into a certain thing when they're graphic recording. And now, in, in the work I do, a lot of it is tuning into what the objectives are that the group says it has. You know, if its objectives are to come up with a vision for themselves, then right. I'll be listening for nuggets of people who are imagining the future and imagining right. what they want to do. If right. if it's a problem-solving thing, I'll be li- listening for how do they really understand the problem and what are they de- how are they describing it. Um, I had a, a friend, one of my friends that I ran into, is a guy named Reinhold Kuchenmuller from Aust- Aust- Austria. I think he now lives in Italy. And he was trained as an architect, but he got into this work, and he has a very unique way of doing it, which is he sits by the meeting, and instead of doing it on a great big... Uh, display, he does it on, on um, four, like five by eight cards using those Tombow brushes. And what he's listening for are the um, sort of the emotional undercurrent of the meeting. You know, what is it that is on people's minds, but they're not really willing to talk about very openly? And it comes out in humor or metaphor or some other places. And he has an uncanny ability to do a little cartoon of it. And he draws his cartoon and usually puts a whimsical kind of caption, a couple of words. And he can produce dozens of these in a couple hours of a meeting. Then people come out in the break, and he's got them up on the wall. He and his wife, Marianne, both do this now. And in places like Germany, apparently there's a very high degree of... Um, alienation about people's feeling about the company they work for in Germany. I don't know why, but it's a, a suspicion uh, that the yeah. company really doesn't have their best interest in mind. That mm-hmm. There's a lot of communications in those business settings where people are basically stuffing it and not talking straightforwardly. And these little cartoons get it going like you wouldn't believe. 
Wow. People come out and they have all these conversations in the breaks and everything, and then he lets them play with them and pick the ones that are most resonant <laughs> with what they want to talk more about. And then some clients have even put these together into those, um, you know, when you go to a tourist place and you see a whole uh, Z-fold of pictures of a place. Sure he'll, sure, he'll put a bunch of these cartoons into a Z-fold thing. It's kind of a memory of the meeting. But he's finding it's almost like he's able to X-ray the group at the level of their emotional authenticity. Oh, wow. So he's listening for something completely different than a task-oriented meeting. Mm-hmm. It's like problem-solving on the surface. And I'm so fascinated with how plastic this medium is. Right. Wow, that is very cool. What was his name? Reinhold Kuchenmuller. K-U-C-H-E-N-M-U-E-L-L-E-R. That is amazing. Yeah, so if you take something like what you're doing and you take something like what he's doing and you try to drop either one of those things into, um, you name it, um, Fortune 10 company in mm-hmm. the world, and um, what kind of response do you get? Well, uh, I've built a whole business on doing that. I mean, we've been in business over 30 years now. I think I started in 77. Um, and we have clients in every area, but a lot of them are, are big companies. Um, in the book, I start out the first chapter um, sharing the story of working with Apple Computer oh boy. In, the, in the 80s when Scully was the president. And at the time, they were really trying to get their young people to understand the difference between leadership and management. And they were just experiencing kind of that takeoff phase of, a, of an organization when right. they, they've really hit it right. And the Macintosh was really moving. And they were just starting to come out with laser printers, and they hit it twice, and they got a laser printer out that was very popular. Um, and they needed leaders. They needed people who would jump in and act and right. take things and run with it and not wait around. So we had these um, sessions, 35 people at a time, down at Pajaro Dunes, and at that time, Apple was not constrained with resources. Mm. I mean, they were they they were reinventing the future as far as they were concerned. Right, and their right. young people were just on fire with doing stuff. So they weren't really very pro- what I would call process oriented. They didn't have really any HR functions. They didn't have a university. They didn't have all these things. And we were just in the process of helping them create some of that. And so. Uh, we got really inspired by what had happened when Apple put what was called a GUI interface on the old computer. I mean, when the first IBMs were all the C prompts. I don't know whether you remember that. Oh, but, yes, I do. You know, these words come out. And here you put this Windows interface on, which had been invented by Doug Engelbart and others at SRI, but hadn't been really you know, brought to the marketplace in a popular way. And people were just responding like crazy. And I thought, well, why can't you do that for a meeting? Why can't you put a GUI interface on a meeting and have it really be visible? So one of the things we did, just a simple thing, is we renamed the meeting from calling it the Leadership Experience to calling it the Leadership Expedition. Uh And we had everybody climb on a bus and go down to Pajaro Dunes with the guides wearing hiking gear. And then they get out, and they register, and they go in, and there's a room with piles of furniture and stuff under nylon tarps to make it look kind of like not like a mountain. And they had to all sit on the floor, 
in front of a nine-screen setup, which suddenly shot to life, and you were suddenly on K2, climbing K2 with Jim Whitaker. Oh, great. And it was uh, one of these synchronized slideshows with a voiceover. And um, at the end of that, Jim Whitaker walks out from behind the thing and talks about the relationship between doing what they just saw and teamwork. And then we had them all build their base camp by taking the nylon off the chairs and everything and setting up the room. And then we came out and oriented them to the agenda, and on the wall I'd made, a um, out of white tape, a mountain range going up maybe 14 feet high. You know, it was a big, you know, high-ceiling room we were meeting sure, in. Sure. And, you know, there was the base camp, and then each one of the days they would spend had a little, you know, it was like uh, the second camp, the third camp, up to the summit. And the summit had, you know, the goal of the meeting, and then on the way up you could see what you did each day. And that then was mirrored in their handout. So this this is kind of the kind of thing we were experimenting with, is how can you make wow. visible what people are thinking, and, you know, how do you make visible possibility? Well, in this and case, you, you know, about... it's, it's theater people have been doing this forever. I mean, I sometimes feel right. like... You know, why do I get credit for starting something? I mean, designers and people in theater have been doing this for... I mean, visual language is so natural. It has a long, long legacy. Well, we're going to talk more about this visual language and its legacy when we come right back after this break. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Did you know that the number one concern of American business is the ability to attract and retain qualified workers? Yet millions of qualified American workers with disabilities are sitting on the sidelines. Disabilities at Work Radio focuses on businesses and their workforce needs and also offers other topics of interest to people with disabilities, their families, and supporters. Join Disabilities at Work Radio every Wednesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito, and we're speaking with David Sibbett, who's the author of Visual Meetings, How Graphic Sticky Notes, Idea Mapping Can Transform Group Productivity. David, we were talking a lot about the idea and the concept, visual language. And, you know, we hear a lot about what we're learning um, in neuroscience these days about the brain and how receptive we are to information, how we process information, how we think Give us your perspective on, on, you know, what's going on in our brain, why visual language seems to work so well for us. Mm-hmm. Well, part of the key is in that second word, language. Um, what I've uncovered in talking to quite a few people who are studying cognitive psychology is that the way that our cortex remembers things is through processes. I mean, we actually remember sequences of things. And in fact, our visual sense is also recorded as sequences. It, it doesn't seem like that because we store these sequences and then we, you know, form a picture of it. But mm. um, our eyes actually only see right in the middle uh, clearly, you know, where it's coming right in on the retina at the center of the optic nerve. And the rest of it, it's much blurrier. And if you just stare at something, you'll notice that out toward the edges, it's, it's very fuzzy. But our eyes dart around. There's a technical term for this called the stochastic process, where you dart around and you're basically painting a picture with all these little points of looking very specifically at things. Mm-hmm. And what what people have been curious about is, you know, what drives that looking around? What What is it that controls your eyes darting around? Hmm. Well... People who studied that quite a bit, Colin Ware is an example that I point out in the book, um, is an academic researcher, uh, has actually done experiments where you strap something on people's heads so you can actually see exactly what they're looking at and when and follow this process, kind of unpack it a little bit, that what drives people looking around is what they're interested in and what their intention is and what their task is. So you give people a different task, and they'll see different things. Now, you can do a little experiment yourself if you just play this uh, little game called Sudoku. Have you heard of that? Yes, yes. With the number game? I have have played that. If you think, I'm looking for threes, you'll Uh see the three patterns. Uh If you say, I'm looking for sevens, you see the seven patterns. Uh And what I've noticed is that once you lock in on one of them, it's much easier to kind of sort out all the numbers that are the same for a while and kind of get in the Uh pattern than if you try to look at each cell and figure it out differently. It goes much slower. Because basically your brain is driving off of your intention and your task orientation. Well, that makes sense because we all know that, you know, if you if you learn about a new car, suddenly everybody has that car. How about Exactly. Oh, right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and if you're single looking for, for a partner, you know, <laughs> it pops right out. So <laughs> that kind of thing. Well, it turns out that, that hearing is that way sight is that way, and the cortex soars these things, and that a very primary way that we perceive the world is through these narrative structures, these strings of things, these, this process. Uh, so storytelling
storytelling. I think that's why storytelling is so very basic. But storytelling is, is the way that we think about time. We put things together in sequences. And that's, we just live in that. We're constantly thinking about time, moving through time, acting through time. But we're also acting through space. And space is the context, whatever we're in. So if you're driving a car, the context is the roads and incoming traffic and everything. And people who are, who are driving have a destination, and they've got that sequence all figured out. They've got a little story about where they're going to go. But they're also paying attention to the, the, where they're going. So I think the human brain has this dual function, this gestalt map function, which looks at context, and this narrative logical sequencing function, which looks at, at the paths that we use. So it's, the, it's kind of the map and the itinerary idea. Oh, interesting. And so you know, we actually can multitask. <laughs> oh, we do. You couldn't drive a car if you didn't. I mean, in fact, you know, the, if you've read uh, Jill Bolte, uh, Jill, what's her name? Yes, 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 yes. You know, the neuroscientist who had a stroke. Jill yep. Bolte-Taylor, I think her name is. Yep who uh, gave a TED Talk a couple of years ago um, and was just amazing. Um, this is a complete side note, but one of my clients actually invited me to record every single TED Talk in 2008. Wow. Tablet. So I got to listen to 50 of them. It was amazing. We do about eight pictures per talk, kind of recording what they were saying. But she was one of them, and I really remember her. And she was saying that, when her left brain, which in her case was the side that processes the, the linear structures, mm-hmm. failed, she was thrown into her right brain, which is where we see connections and see wholeness. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, she had some experiences that she would equate with kind of being transcendent. Right. Uh, senses, feelings of love, feelings of connection. And, and she comes back quite convinced she's retrained herself on the left side, that humans have this dual capacity. I mean, it's really what we sometimes talk about is our spiritual selves and then our logical selves. Right, right. Well, what I've discovered is that when people are in a meeting and they're talking, um, most of the time people don't know really how they're being received. Hmm. And so what people are doing is they're talking, they're, they're paying attention to the logic of their, what they're saying with one part of their mind. But the other part of their mind is looking at context. Like, how are they being received? What are people doing? Are they going to sleep? Are they multitasking? What are they doing? Now, I think one of the profound changes of this visual meeting stuff is that when somebody's in the room there actually listening hard enough to write down what people say mm-hmm. in a faithful way, it completely changes the context. And people aren't even completely aware of how radically it does. But suddenly, there is visual listening occurring. And suddenly, the person who talks can look and see whether they were heard or not. Hmm. And that really affects them. I mean, if they were heard correctly, they tend to contribute more. If somehow the recorder got it wrong, they feel compelled to kind of put in a correction, which actually helps increase the amount of communication that goes on. Right. So I think in some ways this is, you know, it, it's not that we're discovering visual thinking. It's that it's so background we don't think about it consciously a lot of the time. You know, it is, it is the sense through which we see space and context. 
you know, when I, as, going back to the comment you made about Jill Bolte-Taylor, mm-hmm. um, you know, how, when I think about what you are are doing with these two sides of the brain working here, so the fact that someone like her was even in that moment able to be clear enough to know that she could still do something. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it took her, I don't know how, I forget how long it took her to actually dial the number on the phone so she could reach somebody. Yes, it, it was took a long couple time. of hours, right? Or something like yeah. that. She was yeah. a trained neuroscientist, too, so she had a lot of patterned understanding about having, she'd thought about this thing, what a stroke right. means. Right, right. That was her, that was her, uh, yeah. Research. Um, so, so as I think about that, and I think about you know being in the room with all our faculties and um, talking and not being able to understand how we're being received because we're not sorting for that. Um, isn't it just a matter of helping people to become more aware? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, that's a big part of it. Um, what gets interesting is when you think about things like awareness or uh, feelings or mm-hmm. all these kinds of things, humans really operate on a number of levels all at the same time. And, you know, that if you look back through history, there have been lots of names for these different levels. Uh, in current times, you'll see someone like Carl Jung or people who are working with the Myers-Briggs talking about intuition, you know, feeling, thinking, and sensing. Right. has kind of different, you know, two modalities for input and two modalities for making sense out of it. The thinking and feeling is how we make, how we analyze things, and the intuition and the sensing are the way we get input. But uh, the common language words for these would be like spirit, soul, mind, and body. Hmm. And if, if you think of spirit, I worked with a Dutch physician for a while who was, had cured himself of cancer and came back and had a whole approach to using uh, physical exercise as a way of understanding where you were locked up and inhibited and where you were free and open in your life. And he he had an association which I thought was fascinating, which is that uh, the mind is basically um, your, the cortex, he was thinking, I wasn't using the word in the Eastern sense of mind being all sensibility, but mind in the cortical sense is your understanding of patterns, visual, audio, and kinesthetic that you put together from basically exploring the world, walking around, touching things, manipulating, and playing. So he associated the development of your arms and legs with the development of your brain. Really? And he identified the torso, which has your large organs and the viscera, um, and it's where you feel the movement of all the fluids that humans are made out of. I mean, a lot of these tubes that we have in us and organs are fluid bodies that have little scylla and hairs and things. And when we feel something, we're literally feeling movements in in this. That's, I think that's why water is sometimes associated with feelings. Mm-hmm. And so the torso was the mirror of your feelings. And the spine, which is sort of the fiber optic cable of the human being, um, he associated with spirit. And his definition there was a simple one, which is spiritedness is your connection with spontaneity, with with just the ability to respond to pure light, 
you know, regardless of what religious tradition you're in. Um, and so he could look at a person's spine and see and make some inferences about where they were blocked and not blocked mm-hmm. in this regard. So I actually think that when you're talking about it's just raising awareness, um, the visualizing definitely raises awareness at the level of thinking because mm-hmm. you're seeing patterns up there. But right. the person who's doing the recording is also moving their body around. Right. I mean, they're actually dancing. And that dancing actually is a direct communication with the group. It's like a mime. That's great. And how you hold yourself and how you are energetically and how much your own body is in touch with its feelings, I think, is directly connected. I mean, it's a direct hookup. And this is why some people are incredibly able to create safety in a group and mm-hmm. people feel good about them and other people, it's, it doesn't work. I also think that the person who's up there is on some channels, which are really hard to prove and I don't know about, but um, I've been doing this long enough that I don't have to think about what I'm the drawing <laughs> and the writing part. Right, it's, right. it's like a musician or a right. sports player. I get in a zone, and I don't know sometimes where those messages uh-huh. are coming from. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. not feelings, <laughs> yeah, right. and it's not thinking. Right. It's like coming from somewhere, and it, it's possible, it's quite possible, that we are in touch with, with each other at the level of light and frequency. And, yeah. And, you know, well... It's like being a, a vessel for the download. And, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if you look at Bohmian dialogue work, where yeah, Bohm was a, a physicist who believed that things were really interconnected, and he came to that idea through science. Right, right. That if a group holds that possibility, that there is collective wisdom, but it's just implicate, it's just hidden. Right. And you circle around and around, instead of being judgmental and banging against each other, and being percussive and discussive, that you actually suspend judgment, hold it, and then out of that, this it, order will emerge. And there are well, lots of people who are finding that that is what happens in serious dialogue. It is what happens, and we're going to talk more about this and how to be a receptive learner when we come right back. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. We spend 70% of our week in the office. What is the difference between enjoying your job and enduring it? The number one motivator is a positive work environment, and that's where Real Recognition Radio comes in. 
Join your hosts, Roy Saunderson and S. Max Brown, as they take a look at the positive factors of the workplace, such as employee rewards, recognition, incentives, and much more. Tune in to Real Recognition Radio, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Women in business today face many challenges in advancing their careers and reaching their goals. There are corporate executives, entrepreneurs, and business owners that have made their mark in business. Now you can learn their secrets and tips. Listen to Head Over Heels, Women's Business Radio, as your host, Bonnie Marcus, explores how to thrive in the business environment, navigate the workplace, and climb the corporate ladder. Listen live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and effectively promote yourself today. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And welcome back, everyone, to Leading Conversations. We're speaking with David Sibbett today. So, David, we've been talking a lot about visual language and what goes on on many levels, you know, body, mind, spirit, um, in this process. You have alluded to the idea of being receptive in learning and being receptive as a leader. Talk a little bit about that. Well, the work that I do um, with management teams and leadership teams, is a lot of it's about creating strategy, then figuring out how to implement the strategy, um, convincing people that report to you to go along with things they may not have been directly a part of figuring out. It's just a lot involved in getting people to work together. And coming out of training people for public affairs, I sustained an interest in, in leadership for the public sector as well. I mean, I work a lot in foundations and nonprofits, and the thing that I was doing last week was bunch of people in logistics at the federal agency level trying to figure out how to be more coordinated about disasters like Haiti. Mm. And what happens with a lot of people who come to power is the, in fact, I was reading something in the New York Times about this just over the weekend, that the very qualities that get you to that place sometimes are what start disappearing when you actually get the power. So a lot of times, mm-hmm. they, the studies was really about um, people who are friendly and open and receptive to other people often gain power because mm-hmm. people trust them. Mm-hmm. Right. And yet when they get the power, um, people who shout and are arrogant and really bossy and Often it's associated, you know, the more powerful you get, the more sloppy you get and that kind of thing. Not always, but this research was talking about that. Hmm. So I've been fascinated with all these people in all these meetings that I've been running all and it's been all around the world. I work in Asia and Europe and all kinds of different places because the visual language turns out to be very good at cross-cultural stuff. Um, what I'm finding is that I'm always invited in, not as an expert, but as somebody who's simply going to be facilitating people talking to each other. Mm. And I'm sitting there kind of as an empty vessel with ideas about how things work, of course, but, and I'm, I'm really listening for the deep structures of people thinking. And I find that when that happens, 
people start opening up and moving in ways that are really surprising not only to me but to them. Hmm. And this has happened over and over and over where I get people to actually engage. And I've been so fascinated with this, I started looking for evidence that this is important. Uh, the Gestalt uh, people out of Cleveland who have a very developed practice and organizational development thing have a little image of two circles that if two people come together and they've got their boundaries and their identity and their egos all going and they're banging against each other, you don't really get change when that happens. You get change when people start opening those circles and you actually get a transmission across that boundary. Mm. So the whole question is, how do you get people in power to actually be open? Now, we're experiencing in Silicon Valley where, you know, being in San Francisco, a lot of my clients are high-tech companies. Um, you're getting an evolution toward ecosystems thinking in the form of people beginning to look at what's happening on the web and what's happening when you share your intellectual property rather than just hoard it and make it proprietary. Now, there's still a lot of proprietary kinds of software out there, but there's a lot of examples where people have opened up their system and invited a lot of others to come in and play. And I think it's really kind of an interesting analogy for our times that, that there's a relationship between how strong the platform is, the, the infrastructure that you're dealing with, and how flexible you can be with the application layer. And I think the same thing is true in leadership, that leaders who know how to be very firm about certain basic things that really are needed but very, very open about how those get applied and how they get played out, I think are some of the most spectacular leaders. But the ones who think that they are the font of all stuff and start mm-hmm. you know, getting carried away with their own image of the world, if you're at the center of a large system, you can count on the fact that your information is pretty bad. Right. Because all the people who are surrounding you are doing mostly heavy breathing, <laughs> concerned about their jobs and everything right. else. It really corrupts the information you get. Right. And in many cases, the periphery is more in tune with what's happening than the center. So we could go on and on about this, but I think that just the act of... I had one CEO of a company in Boston tell me who came to an early workshop, he says, I love this visual meeting idea because I get to grab a pen and stand up and do something as the CEO. Instead of being intimidating everybody and saying something, I get to listen to them. Right. And they can see me writing this stuff down. And he doesn't draw very well, <laughs> but he knows the power of it and just jumps in. Well, and how often do you have that experience where CEOs, senior leaders, are willing to do this? Well, um, I don't know. Uh, one of the reasons I got to write this book, Visual Meetings, is because of another fellow named Dan Rome who wrote a great book called Back of the Napkin. Mm. And it's, it's sold so well, that's, I think, the reason why we came knocking on my door. And um, he has a fun little test he's been doing all over the place, which is he talks about people being black pen people, yellow pen people, and red pen people, actually markers, like black, yellow, and red markers. Black pen people are people who, if there is a whiteboard and pens, they will get up and draw. (laughs) And he finds about 20, 25%, I've been conducting the same test, asking how many people will feel comfortable drawing. And it's about that. It's about a quarter of the people feel okay about drawing. They get through school and they can they feel good about it. And I run into a certain number of CEOs who draw. 
And, uh, you know, particularly in high-tech companies, a lot of them are engineers. They draw and scribble on the whiteboards all the time. Right. And you're up right. diagramming, doing stuff. Now, 50% of the people in Dan Rome's little informal test are yellow pen people, which means as soon as there's a drawing, they want to be up there underlining. <laughs> and they're very visual. But 25%, the other 25% are red pen people, which who think they know so much, they understand the nuances that really is drawing is just dumbing things down and making it way too simplistic, and they really don't like it. Uh-huh. And so there are quite a few, you know, red pen people out there. So this isn't for everybody. Right. But right, right. I also think that you don't have to um, dumb things down. I mean, you can actually be very disciplined right. with visualization. Right. Well, I've seen some of those... Um, visualizations that you have created and you and, and some of your consultants have created, they are absolutely amazing and mm-hmm. very intricate. I mean, the work you did with Visa, for instance, yeah. it was so um, in-depth, I don't know what other word to, yeah. to use, and there, there was so much depth and meaning um, and, and really looking at their future. And it, of course, was quite large, <laughs> one of the, one of the uh, little stories I'm telling myself about what's happening here is that I really think that after exploring this medium stem to stern, that these different ways of visualizing things are actually proxies for different cognitive styles. Hmm. And that what we really need is spectrum kind of thinking now. We need the ability to collaborate across many different kinds of ways of right. thinking. Right. And that if you use a full spectrum of visualization, and this is one of the things I really went to great lengths with in the Visual Meetings book, is to spell out this keyboard idea, that um, working with different ways of visualizing actually trains your brain to be receptive and perceptive in different ways. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about this group graphics keyboard. We've only got a couple of minutes left. Mm-hmm. But you, as I've looked at it, um, this seems like this is really the cornerstone of the whole process. Yes. This is how you teach people to think this way mm-hmm. before you teach them how to draw, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's a bit like learning jazz or something. These are the primary processes. And I said earlier that I think thinking in process terms is more fundamental than structure. Mm. that if you organize how people visualize based on the process of visualizing, and you say, what's the simplest thing you can do? Well, the simplest thing you can do is make a dot on a white paper. And if you make a dot on a white paper, people will look at it. (laughs) And it turns out that this poster effect is what poster designers are doing, is they're trying to get you to look at it Mm. by being different than anything else. So if you do something that's different than anything else, people are going to look at it. So if you have a flip chart, nothing but words, and you do one little picture, people are going to look right. at that one little picture. Right, right, right. So that's the simplest thing you can do. The next thing is to just flow in a list in a linear way with what people are saying. People don't even think of a table of contents or minutes or, you know, text in a word processor as right. a graphic, but it is. It's just in a linear style. It's just one thing after another, and nobody, everybody understands that. It's totally second nature. Now, if you jump then to sticky notes, you have suddenly gone from linear time-based, you know, flow of information to space, spatially arrayed information. And what happens when you look at sticky notes, if you have three or four sticky notes, 
you are invariably going to start comparing them. <laughs> and I think what sticky note or spacing information does is it activates your comparative thinking. Oh, interesting. Where listening doesn't do that necessarily automatically. That's a good point. Then if you jump to a grid, which is the basis of spreadsheets, maps, data charts, all these things are done on grids. In order to even create a grid, you have to be very clear on the categories that you're comparing. You know, you've got to know what the labels are for the different rows and columns. Right. And it's a much harder process to, to go through. But when you get really clear categories, whoa, what a powerful analytical tool. If you go zoom in on each little cell and see what you fill in. Well, you can see how that zooming in in a comparative thing is a very different cognitive process mm-hmm. than just spatially linking things in a sticky note display, which is very different than just scanning in a list. Right. So these are the four basics. Then I got very interested in what's the next one. Well, diagramming is mind mapping, where you connect all the things together like a tree. Right, right. And then if you add metaphor, it jumps to drawings, and people project into it what they already know. So if you take a branching diagram and you actually make it look like a tree, it's a different visual, even though structurally it looks very similar. And then if you organize it all around a center, which is the hardest thing to do, where you say everything is related to the center, you've got a mandala, which is a Sanskrit word for unity or archetype. And so those are the seven formats, and I developed that working with Arthur Young's process theory in 76, and have been all over the world testing it, and it is held up. These are the seven archetypes, and I think they're really pointers at seven cognitive styles when it comes to visualizing. Well, you know, this is so powerful, and I tell you, David, this is, it makes my heart sing because um, I want people to do things like blow up their PowerPoint presentations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, want, I want people well, to be They can be used educated. well. They can be I used want, well, but they well, are not. I know, but, you know, it's like it, we have become so reliant on that. There's been so little engagement with each other, and what you, the core of this is about engagement with each yes. other, and um, it is just such a powerful process, and thank you for bringing it to the world and, and sustaining it the way you have, and the book is Visual Meetings, How Graphics, Sticky Notes, and Idea Mapping Can Transform Group Productivity. David, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Uh, two ways. Uh, our website at Grove is www.grove.com. That's spelled like trees, G-R-O-V-E. And I also have a blog, davidsibbet.com, with one T, S-I-B-B-E-T. And I write things... Occasionally, I'm not writing all the time, but the pieces I put on there are quite thoughtful, and there's a lot of information about this in both well, places. Great. Thank you, David, so much. I know the book is available um, on Amazon and at bookstores. And Barnes & Noble and Borders. Wonderful. Fantastic. Good luck with the book. And um, I well, thank you so much for being here today, David. And remember, everyone, to think big because the world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. 
Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.